Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. I don't know about you, but I've never snakes. Not a snake lover. Some people are. They love to wrap snakes around their neck. I never have understood that. I never understood why people do that kind of thing. And I know there's snakes that are harmless. You know, if I see a harmless snake, I leave it alone. I, I saw, about a year ago, I saw a black snake in my backyard. I let it go because, you know, black snakes are supposed to eat rats, vermin, and all these kind of things. So I let it go. Um, I have a problem with that. But if I see a poisonous snake, like a rattlesnake, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to try to kill it. And uh, I had a friend who <laughs> hated snakes more than anybody I ever knew. He, I was riding with him one day in a car, and we were riding down the country somewhere. And we went down the road, and he saw a rattlesnake crossing the road. And he saw it at the last second. He passed by it, and he says, a rattlesnake. He turned around. Did you squeal the brakes? Turned around, did a U-turn, and t t turned his tire when he got over the snake and killed it. He was so happy about that. Most people are not thrilled by snakes. And I, by the way, I have no intentions of going to Tennessee to be a snake-handling preacher either. That's not my, that's not my calling, at least. Yeah, isn't it true that the average person is afraid of snakes? Probably the average person in here is afraid of snakes. There's always somebody who loves snakes, is in love with snakes. I don't understand that. We should, you know, we shouldn't be, we should be afraid of snakes that are poisonous for sure, if nothing else. And uh, most people are cautious about snakes. Most people want to kill them or at least get away from them because snakes are sneaky, right? Very sneaky. They're slithering around. Their tongue's coming out. And even the harmless one looks that way, look that way. But the snake we're going to talk about tonight, there's nothing harmless about the snake at all. Nothing. In fact, he's full of deadly poison. The kind of poison that seeks the eternal destruction of people. And thankfully, God's grace will prevail uh, through the ultimate seed of the woman tonight. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 tonight. But just for a recap, uh, the fault, by the way, I've never, and just in this chapter, as you know through the years, we've gone through the Old Testament. I've always tried to go through maybe a chapter at a time or a, long, a large portion. That, this one I find myself not able to do it in this chapter. And I keep thinking, well, I'll do this in one message, Genesis 3. And then the next week, I thought, no, I'll do it in two messages. And the next week, I thought, I'll do it in three messages. And I don't know where it's going to end. I told somebody yesterday, we'll be in the book of Genesis for eternity. So <laughs> I'm, try I'm not trying to do that. It's just the nature of, the, of this particular chapter, I guess. But to recap a little bit, the fall of man, first 19 verses. We're talking, we were talking last week about the confrontation by the Lord after man and woman sinned, that's verse 8 to 13, he confronts them, first of all, by asking questions. He asks four questions. Look at verse 9 of Adam and Eve. Verse 9, he says, where are you, Adam? Verse 11, who told you you were naked? Verse 11 again, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 13, to the woman, what is this you have done? But those questions were evaded. They shifted the blame to other people, and, uh, and so God started confronting them by asking questions, very gracious way, I might add. Secondly, he confronts them by passing judgment. By passing judgment, that's in verses 14 to 19, God is going to pass judgment on the serpent, the woman, and the man. Each of these sections begins, notice how each of these sections begins with the Lord speaking to that individual. Look at verse 14, the first phrase, the Lord God said, 
to the serpent. Verse 16, to the woman he said. <clears throat> Verse 17, to Adam he said. So we want to start with the serpent, verses 14 and 15, judgment passed on the serpent. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I was just thinking, as much as I wonder about this verse, verse 15, I've thought about it a lot uh, this past week, and uh, I have questions about it still, still working on it in my mind, but I just thought, as I was reading this, I was thinking about through this, how do, I th how do you think about things like this up here? I was thinking about all the people through history, not every person, <laughs> that would have been impossible, who read these verses, and who studied these, who preached out of these verses, like Martin Luther and people like that. All the, the names that you go back in history. The people that throughout church history have talked about chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, and, and, and it's an amazing thing to think about, the connection that we have with history. Now, when verse, verses 14 and 15 speak of the serpent, understand that this is an actual physical snake in verse 14, yet it's under the control of Satan. Revelation 12, 9, which looks back to Genesis 3, talks about that serpent of old, that ancient serpent, the serpent in Genesis 3, and it says that serpent is also called the devil and Satan. So, which one is the Lord addressing here? Is he addressing the physical snake, or is he addressing, addressing Satan? And the answer is he's, he's addressing both, the physical snake and the serpent. Now, as we look at verses 14 and 15, keep, keep both in view, but in verse 14, verse, verse 14 primarily primarily has reference to the physical snake. Verse 15 has reference to Satan. And so as we look at this, just a two-point outline here. First of all, the curse on the physical snake, verse 14, a physical serpent. And second, secondly, B, the, cure on, the, the curse on Satan, verse 15. I think that's how I have it in your notes. Uh, first of all, the curse on the physical serpent, verse 14. Again, primary but not exclusive party in verse 14 is the physical serpent. Now in verses 9 to 13, the Lord, we just saw this, the Lord asked questions of the man and woman. He doesn't breathe fire and brimstone at them because they'd sinned. He doesn't come at them with great judgment uh, because they've hid themselves. He does not slay them. He could have. He asked questions to get them to realize the severity of their disobedience and to get them to own up to what they've done. But as we move to verse 14, the Lord, something that we see that doesn't happen, the Lord does not question the serpent. He doesn't question it. Where, where are you? What's going on here? What have you done? None of that. Why? Well, there's no reason to. Would it do any good to reason with a physical snake? First of all, the snake has no capacity to reason. He doesn't understand sin. He doesn't understand the implications of sin. He doesn't understand what happened in the garden in a, in a spiritual sense. He's a brute beast. And secondly, would it do any good to, for the Lord to question the one who controls the serpent, Satan? Would that do any good? If he were to question him, would Satan's conscience be wounded because of what he had done? No. Would not be. Would he feel guilty about what he has done? No. Would he humble himself before the Lord? No. Would he repent? No. Not a chance. No chance of all. So Satan does not get questioned. Satan has no sense of guilt. Think about this. We as believers have a sense of guilt when we sin. Satan has no sense of guilt. He doesn't have any concern for this. He has no conviction of sin. He's God's enemy. He hates God with all his heart. He hates Christ with all his heart. 
He hates the people of God with all, all his heart, and he always will. He opposes the things of God. So, unlike the man and woman whom the Lord questions, he doesn't do that. He has no time, no tolerance for questioning the serpent. He immediately pronounces judgment. Look at verse 14. He says, because you have done this. That sounds very similar to the question in verse 13 addressed to the woman. To the woman, he said, what is this you have done? Well, the this the woman had done was to eat of the tree. The this the serpent had done was to deceive the woman with the intent to cause her to disobey the very word of God. And so Satan utilized this instrument of the serpent to get to, to, get, to, get to Eve. And just like the, uh, ser- the Satan tried to stamp out the church in the New Testament at its beginning, using the Apostle Paul, uh, when he was Saul, before he was saved, he is trying to stamp out and trying to destroy what God has created and creation right at its beginning. Let's go after it right now at the inception, he thinks. But the judgment in verse 14 is primarily against a physical snake. Now you say, well, this is just an animal. This is an animal. Yes, but this animal is complicit in the crime and the temptation and fall of the woman. He's complicit because Satan uses him as his instrument. Now, PETA, the people for ethical treatment of animals, they would say this is animal abuse. They would come after Satan for animal abuse right here. Luther said this, for the serpent and Satan were intimately connected in the sin of the fall. Though Satan, listen to this, was the principal actor, the serpent was only the instrument. And therefore, it is that they are made alike partakers of the punishment. They're complicit. The serpent is complicit in this crime, any way you look at it. John Gill said this, the devil's instruments must share in the devil's punishments. And that's how it is. You know, the, there's, elsewhere in the scripture, it talks about animals being punished for certain reasons. Like, for example, Exodus 21. I think I have all this in your notes. Exodus 21 decrees that if an ox kills a man, he's going to be stoned to death. So in that case, an ox sought the physical harm of a man, and God says you're going to have to put him to death. In this case, the snake is, is complicit in seeking the spiritual harm of those people, and so he is punished. The Lord says, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. Now, those categories of animals that are mentioned here, all cattle, every beast of the field, they're mentioned, you can look back in Genesis 1, 24 and 25. We talked about that some time ago. And they have to do with domesticated animals like cattle and non-domesticated animals like the wild beasts, which back then, before the fall, there were, there were no, they were all tame. But nevertheless, that's how they're distinguished. And he says to the serpent, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. Now, this, I, this has been thought of in two different ways. This, there's two different p- possible interpretations here. And as I said, I have, I have a lot of questions of Genesis 3.15. I think a lot of other people throughout history have had those questions as well. And I'm not the end of all knowledge regarding this verse. But it can be translated in two different ways. Number one, it can be translated this way. Cursed are you out of all these animals. Out of all these animals, out of the number of all these animals, you're cursed. In other words, out of all the animals on the planet, the serpent alone is cursed. It can be, taken, it can be translated that way, actually. Secondly, it can be translated this way, the serpent is cursed more than all animals, which the NASB in most translations take. That's a comparison sense. So the serpent is cursed above and beyond all the other animals 
but because sin, is, uh, because sin has now entered the universe, all animals are cursed as well. That's what th that, that would lead us to that. So you either have the serpent alone is cursed, which a lot of people think, or all animals are cursed. Which, which interpretation is correct? I do not know. After wrestling with this forever, I still don't know for sure, but I will tell you this much. Whatever way you take it, when the man fell, when the woman fell into sin, the world, all the people, all the animals, has been drastically and dramatically and negatively affected with sin. There's no doubt about that at all. Man, the image of God in man has been marred, and there's no doubt about that. The fall plunges the whole world into sin and judgment, and I will say this, if nothing else, the serpent is certainly uniquely judged here. No doubt about that. Matthew Henry says, even the creeping things, when God made them, were blessed. In Genesis 1, remember God said, I, everything is, all my creation is good, but sin turned the blessing into a curse. And that's the collateral damage that sin causes. Whenever we sin, it almost always affects, when I sin, it affects somebody else. Somehow, some way, it, the collateral damage is there. In this case, there's no, no effort to minimize the damage in the case of Genesis 3. Now, the American military, when they are engaged in warfare or practice, military practice, they seek to minimize collateral damage. They always do this. But in the Garden of Eden, when Satan was afoot, his goal was to maximize the damage. No damage controlled by Satan. He wants to plunge the whole world into sin. He wants everybody to feel the effects of sin. And they did. And they still do, and we still do to this day. So we see, Jimmy talked this morning about the, I think in your prayer, the, the mess going on in the country right now. That is because of the, that's the results of sin. And all over the world where you see trouble and violence and evil, that's the results of sin, this, this effect that it had. So the serpent is at least the primary target of the curse. Now the curse is the opposite of bless. God had talked about that already a couple times in Genesis. It's to invoke God's judgment on someone for a particular offense. Now, there's a word play here. It's interesting. In chapter 3, in verse 1, look at verse 1. It says there that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, but now in 3.14, he is the most cursed of any beast. He got what was coming to him. The Lord God said, on your belly you shall go. On your belly you shall go. Now, over the centuries, many people, like Josephus, have said, well, if he's on his belly now, that means he had legs previous to this. And some say, well, he had an upright posture. And others, I've read others who said, well, he had wings. Well, the fact of the matter is we don't have an exact description of what he looked like before the fall. I can imagine one, maybe, but it's going to be subject to dispute. And we don't have a fossil that says, here's how he looked. We don't have a photograph. We have nothing. We don't know what he looked like before the fall. But however he looked then, he is now on his belly. Some say he was on his belly pre-fall. I don't know what he was. He's on his belly now for sure, crawling and slithering around. That word belly, translated here belly, is used only here and also one other time, Leviticus 11.42 in the Old Testament. And it says there, whatever walks on its belly, whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet, and respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. Now, the context there is defining 
clean and unclean food for Israel later on, the Mosaic Law. And it says things like this, reptiles, creepy crawlers, all those things we don't like to look at, don't like to be around. I'll tell you one time, I was, Ken, I was in Haiti, and I saw, I saw a tarantula as big as my hand like that. And I looked at it, and I thought, my goodness. And some Haitian ladies were coming. It was right near a restroom outdoors, coming to use that restroom. And an American was there with me, and he wanted to, make, he wanted to play a trick on them and not tell them. And I said, no, I can't. It was nighttime. I said, I can't do that. I said, hey, I said, hey ladies, in English, as they spoke Creole, uh, there's something over there. And they got something was going on, and they saw that, and they freaked out completely. I tell you, those kind of things are detestable and scary. And so he says, these, this is an unclean animal, a snake. It's going to be declared unclean later on in the Mosaic Law. He goes on to say, and dust you will eat. Now, dust is not his diet. It's not saying, your diet, you, this is what you're going to feed on from now on. I have read, I, I read about this. You know, this is called herpetology. How do you find it? You know, whenever you study the Bible, you become a herpetologist, <laughs> study of snakes and reptiles. I don't want to become a herpetologist. Never heard the word until today, by the way. You, 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 Mike, am I right? You end up studying all kinds of stuff, right? You never thought you'd even think about it all. Uh, I've read that snakes don't eat dust, and I've read they have an organ called a Jacobson organ in their mouth that will take dust in and filter it out and put it back out. Some say, well, so they do eat dust, but not really, because they spit it back out, apparently, but I don't know. I'm not a herpetologist. But I know one thing, they, they do slither around near the ground. They're close to the dust. But the real reason that it says they're going to eat dust is because, as you study the scriptures, eating dust is often used in the Bible to describe humiliation or even suffering defeat. Humiliation, suffering defeat. Psalm 72.9 speaks of the enemies of Solomon, uh, Israel's enemies in general, Israel's kings, their enemies of, the, of Israel's kings. And it says this, let his enemies lick the dust. Lick the dust, a similar phrase as to here, eating dust. In other words, let them be defeated, let them be humiliated, let them not be victorious over Israel. That's what the word means. Isaiah 49, 23, on a future day, it says even kings will bow down to you, Israel. They're going to bow down to you with their faces to the earth, and they're going to lick the dust of your feet. Same idea, which is a sign of humility. They're going to be humbled. Again, Micah 7.17, and I, these references are in your notes. So have to keep, that's why I do this, so you don't have to turn to everything right now. You can look at it later, though. Micah 7.17, on a future day, it says, The enemy nations of Israel will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. Each time, phrase implying defeat, humility, uh, from the enemies of Israel. Enemies are greatly humbled. So... As for the physical servant, there will be humiliation. Humiliation. And as the instrument of Satan, he's, now think about this for a minute. As the instrument of Satan, the serpent sought to, he, he sought to uh, conquer the man who was chosen to rule over them. Remember in Genesis 1:28, 26 to 28, God said, you're going to rule over the earth, you're going to subdue it, you're going to rule over every living creature of the earth, including snakes, serpents. And now the serpent who should have been in a role of submission to the man and the woman is trying to conquer the man. He tries to conquer the man. And so God says, no, you're going to be subjected to humiliation and defeat all the days of your life. And all snakes afterward are going to be subjected to that. 
And just like you caused the woman to eat fruit, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, I'm going to cause you to eat dust. And so he humbles the snake. By the way, whenever you see a snake, black snake, you know, I love people when they say, oh, it's just a black snake. It's just a, it's just a water snake. Don't worry about that. Is it a moccasin or a water snake? Which one is it? Whenever you, think, whenever you see a snake, think of this. Think of the judgment upon snakes. Think of the judgment upon Satan. That's a reminder. Every time you see a snake, think of that. Now, what is interesting about this business of eating dust is that the same holds true for the serpent even during the millennial age, of all things. Isaiah 65, 25, again in your notes. Isaiah 65, 25, describing the conditions of the millennium. You know, we've heard these verses. Uh, the lamb's going to lie down with the lion, that kind of thing. Here's what it says here. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. That's, good. That's great. Peaceful conditions, right? The lion will eat straw like the ox. Great. Peaceful conditions. But look what it says next. And dust shall be the serpent's food. Dust shall be the serpent. Nothing's changed. Even in the millennial period, the serpent is still under humiliation, the state of humiliation. That's how severe the curse is. Now, how long will this... Will physical snakes have to endure humiliation? Look at verse 14. He says, all the days of your life. All the days of your life. That's a reference. Think about this. That's a reference to death after the fall. All the days of your life means the serpent has a limited time to live on this planet. Now we're talking about death. We didn't talk about death in chapter 2. What we did in the sense of, if you eat this tree, you're going to die. But now we're talking about death. And we talk about this in relationship to the serpent. His days are numbered. But think about this. Isn't it the serpent who told Eve in chapter 3, verse 4? Look at chapter 3, verse 4. He says to the, the serpent, says to Eve, you surely will not die if you eat that tree. And now he is the one who's going to die. The serpent is the one who's going to die. He's going to, the snake is going to die. The bi biological snake is cursed under the curse of God. Secondly, the curse on Satan, verse 15. Curse on Satan. Verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. I would like to have about a month to study this. Mike said today, next week I can do mop-up duty on the sermon from the previous week or something like that, Mike. Maybe I can do this next week too. We'll see. I'm still thinking it through certain aspects of verse 15. Now, at about this stage in Genesis 3, we might be wondering, where's the hope? Are you wondering that? Is there any hope for Adam and Eve? Is there any hope for the world? Is there any hope for mankind? I mean, so far, not much good has happened in Genesis 3. Back in Genesis, Genesis 1, things were good. This is a good creation, God says, I've made a very good creation, as a matter of fact. And now, what do we see in chapter 3 so far? Temptation. We see satanic influence. We see sin. We see deception. We see lies, we see shame, we see blame, we see, we see a lack of full disclosure, we see a curse. Where's the hope? Where's the hope in all that, we, want, we wonder? Well, hold on a minute. I think the first thing we need to do is feel the pain of chapter 3. The Puritans had a way of looking at things like this. They, they felt, first of all, before a person needs to get saved, before he gets saved, he should dwell long upon the fact that he's a sinner. He should think about this deeply. And I think that's our first need, to feel the pain of chapter 3. Feel the pain of sin. Feel the pain that, uh, and the, of the misery it brings. Isn't this true, what, is, what I'm saying? Isn't this true, according to this chapter? 
Doesn't sin bring us misery? Think about that. Feel the pain of succumbing to temptation and its consequences. Feel the agony of giving in to Satan and what he has said. Feel the weight of things in your soul deeply. We need to think about that. What is chapter 3 saying in, in one sense? It's saying this is a horrible, sin is horrible. Sin is devastating. Sin is life-changing, life-altering, world-altering. And it's worth pondering the effects of sin more if we will sin less. Maybe we'll sin less if we ponder it more. But I want you to know there is hope, having said that. Although Genesis 1 does not give the gospel, if you remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, which, where God said, let there be light, Paul took that in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and he, said, and he took off on that verse, and he said, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, triggered by the thought of Genesis 1, 3, thought about that, and he said, hey, the gospel, is, the light of the gospel shines brightly and can save people from sin. But still, Paul's words come much, much later in history. Is there any hope mentioned by our author Moses in the book of Genesis? And I think there is. And that hope of all places is found in what seems to be such a hopeless chapter, Genesis chapter 3. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is called, has been called for centuries the first gospel, the first, or the first announcement of the gospel. Verse 15 again, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, at first glance, you might think, what gospel is to be found here? doesn't seem to be much of a gospel at all. In fact, I myself, reading this at different times, I have not seen a gospel per se. Uh, I'm too much of a literalist, probably. The, the, the liberal Bible scholars, they certainly don't see anything here in the way of a gospel. I don't expect them to, because they don't believe the scriptures anyway. I don't expect them to care about the gospel at all. Even Martin Luther who says Genesis 3.15 is noble and glorious, also says these noble and glorious truths are veiled. They're veiled in Genesis 3.15. They're not so obvious that believers, that's true, I, I agree with this, believers need to ponder deeply this verse and realize the New Testament sheds further light on it. Now, I do want you to understand that the gospel is not fully explained in Genesis 3.15. There's no, the, 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 the book of Romans is not being unfolded for us in Genesis 3.15. But I would call it this, I've seen it called this, I've even thought of this myself, it is the first glimmer of the gospel, I would call it. And maybe a, 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 I would also say foundational to the gospel, the first glimmer of the gospel. And there's hope to be found in Genesis 3.15, and that's why they call it the first gospel. That's why they call it the first announcement of the gospel. Now we've been talking about a physical snake in verse 14. And as you read verse 15, you, it says things like, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. And we might think, well, verse 14 primarily is talking about a physical snake, and so maybe verse 15 is too. That's what it looks like. And, uh, I mean, wouldn't it be logical for a snake to bite a person on the heel? He's low to the ground. And, I, I, you know, many times I've been in the woods for different reasons, camping or whatever, and where am I, what am I looking all the time? I'm looking at the ground. Because if you grow up in this state, you learn one thing as a kid. Look at the ground for snakes. And I learned that a long time ago, and I do, because you're probably going to see one somewhere, and you don't want to see the wrong kind. So I'm always the lookout for that. But wouldn't it be logical for a snake to go for the heel, right, nearest to the snake's mouth? And wouldn't it be logical 
if I took my foot and stomped on a little snake to kill it. Now, if it's a bigger snake, I'm going for the shovel. Shovel to the, the head, right? Shovel to the back. I've done it before, by the way. Don't tell Peter, though. So we might think, well, this is verse 15 is just a snake in the grass, but is that what it is? Is verse 15 about snake bites and about killing snakes? Remember that the serpent is controlled by Satan. So something more, something more definitely than just a snake bite is happening in verse 15. Let's break the verse down a little by little. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, that word appears at the beginning of the sentence enmity. Literally, it says this, an enmity I will put between you and between the woman. So the emphasis lies, or the emphasis, as was said today, lies on the word enmity. The word enmity indicates an intense hostility, a deep animosity between groups of people, a very deep hatred. That Old Testament uses that word in different ways. Like, for example, it uses it of warfare. Nations that are at warfare against each other, they are at enmity one another. It's also used to express the feelings of a murderer. He feels this enmity. So you can see this hatred runs deep, deep source of hatred. It's also a long-lasting enmity. As long as there is a devil, there's going to be intense hostility. Uh, Revelation 12, 17, I think, talks about the rage that Satan feels, the dragon feels, for the Israel and for the children, basically the followers of, Christ, followers of God, it says in so many words there. He feels, he's enraged by them. He hates them with all his heart. By the way, he hates all of you. He hates all people of God. Satan hates you with all his heart and wants to destroy your life. So there's going to be this intense hostility between the two. One writer called this warfare a life and death struggle. And I thought about this, and it reminded me of Ephesians 6.12. Mike mentioned some of this this morning, by the way. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, or literally blood and flesh, I think it is phrased there, actually. It's not against people, in other words. It is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. All those descriptions, powers, world powers, uh, 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 darkness, wickedness, have to do with Satan and his demons. That's where the battle really belongs. That's where the fight really is. If we're fighting people, then we're fighting on the wrong battlefield. Satan is the enemy of the believer. We need to focus on him. That's easy for us to fight people. We get mad at people. But we should be focusing on the enemy, Satan. Now, where does this enmity, now this is very interesting to me, where does this enmity, this intense hostility come from? It comes from God. Look at verse 15. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. God says this. So there's going to be an ongoing battle between Satan versus Eve and her offspring. Here's where an interpretation comes in. And I, I'm holding to this interpretation. Enmity between Eve and Satan. Enmity between her seed, which would be those who believe in the true God and are friends of God and enemies of Satan. That's how I see this. Followers, her seed being those who follow God, follow Christ. At the beginning of, now think about this, at the beginning of chapter 3, Eve is on speaking terms with Satan. She is. Remember the conversation they were having, the engaging conversations? Can you imagine a person being on speaking terms with the devil? That's not, some people don't have to imagine that because they have no problem taking advice from the devil or his people who are oftentimes in the, in the form of professing believers. 
But now the Lord is the instigator of hostility between Satan and his offspring versus Eve and her offspring. And it reminds me of James 4.4, which says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Eve had been in cahoots with the prime enemy of God, Satan. Beginning of chapter 3. She was listening. She was, oh, really? Yeah. I can be like God. This is going to be great. And so she's listening to him. She had been in cahoots with him. And now God promises to put enmity between those two. No more speaking terms here. No more friendship here. Even Satan is going to be enmity between. And now in order for that to happen, Eve must become the friend of God. How does this happen outside of Eve becoming the friend of God? How does this happen outside of God working in her heart out of God's salvation? I don't see it happening any other way. So I believe that God is going to save Eve and focus her animosity in the right direction against Satan, not God. When she violated God's command, that was animosity towards God. Now, there's a very important word to deal with in verse 15, the word seed or offspring. And this is where other interpretations come in. It's an important word in, the God, in Genesis. It's used 59 times. It's an important word in Pentateuch. I take the word seed to mean what is called, hold your breath, a collective singular in the Hebrew in this context. I know this is debated back and forth. Yes, I've read papers on either side of this issue. A collective singular. By that I mean this word seed in Genesis 3.15 can refer to more than one person, more than one person, a group even. So we can speak of Christ and those who belong to him as well as Satan and those who belong to him in this verse. I don't know how we could understand this verse in any other way. Of course, the seed of the woman, Eve, the, seed, the woman is Eve. The seed of the woman, Eve, is going to culminate eventually in Christ, the Messiah. Now, we know the Bible speaks collectively of those who are the seed of God, the offspring of God, and those who are the seed of the serpent, the seed of Satan. For example, remember, everybody remembers John 8, 44, when Jesus says to certain people, you are of your father, the devil. You're, you're, you're seed. You're, you're the seed of Satan. And you want to do the desires of your father. He's your father. You're his seed. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So the devil has seed. The devil has offspring. How do they act? They act like their father. They're the spitting image of their father, just like him. If, if, you, if you wonder why people, if you look at this country and you wonder, what in the world's going on here? They're acting like your father the devil. That's what's happening. 1 John 3, this is in your notes. 1 John 3, you can turn there if you want to. It's a few verses. 1 John 3, verse 7. 1 John 3, 7 says this. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, back in Genesis. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot practice sin because he's born of God. In other words, we don't live, you know, we, we, we are, our goal is to live a righteous life believers are. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. That's the goal. That's the direction. And look at verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. We can tell them apart. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So we have a clear distinction drawn by Scripture 
between the seed of God and the seed of the devil. Clearly drawn. The direction of God's people to live righteously. The direction of Satan's children, his seed, his offspring. They don't care about righteousness. They could care less. They can go out and riot and do whatever they want to. They don't, it doesn't bother them at all. Not at all. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus referred to a group of, of hypocrite, hypocritical people as a brood of vipers. A brood of, an offspring of vipers. An offspring of snakes. How fitting in light of who their father is. Ephesians 2, chapter 1 and following, talks about those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins. They used to walk according to the course of this world. They used to follow the, the prince of the power of the air, Satan. The spirit who is now working in, in the sons of disobedience. They're called the sons of disobedience who follow Satan. They're also called the children of wrath, the seed of Satan. It's not very flattering descriptions, is it? And these are all, in a collective sense, referring to people who follow either the Lord or Satan. Derek Kidner says this, a commentator, Derek Kidner says, her seed, Eve's seed, Genesis 3.15, is like the seed of Abraham, is both collective and in a crucial struggle at the cross, individual, because it points to Christ. Since Jesus, as the last Adam, summed up mankind in himself. But all this, all this in verse 15 culminates in this last, in this phrase, he. He shall bruise you on the head. Who is he? This is he, he who bruises Satan on the head. This is not a minor bruise, by the way. Let me t- say this first. This word means to crush. Satan is going to be defeated by a crushing blow. So who is it to, that delivers this crushing blow? Who's the ultimate seed of the woman? I think it's the Messiah. I think it's Christ. I definitely think that. And the woman in Genesis 3, again, not Mary. I think the Latin Vulgate may have translated it that way at one point or something like that. But it's not Mary, it's Eve. And through Eve's posterity, one day will come the Messiah. Obviously, Jesus will be born of Mary, but that's not who we're talking about here. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. But Satan sets about to resist all that. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 2, Herod is seeking to kill the child Jesus after he is born, trying to kill him, wipe him out. Where's this... One, you say he's born king of the Jews. Well, I'm the king. Let's get rid of this, uh, this fake king here. And then Revelation 12, 5. Revelation 12 is a very interesting chapter because it describes how the Messiah was born despite Satan's best efforts to stop that birth. And then in Luke 23, 52, G- Judas betrays Jesus, and Jesus says to him, this is your hour in the power of darkness. In other words, Satan's going after Jesus. But it was on the cross that Satan was delivered a crushing blow to the head through, his, through the death and resurrection of Christ. Satan was defeated. Now, he's still out there working, obviously, but his doom is sure. His fate is sealed. He's awaiting that time when the final judgment hits. Jesus says in John 12, 31, Now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Jesus anticipating his cross as a triumph over Satan. Again, in John 16, 11, the ruler of this world, that Satan, has been judged. He's been judged. He's awaiting, we could say he's awaiting execution, but he's awaiting the lake of fire. Colossians 2, 13 and 15, interesting, Stephen, I've never heard anybody pray out of Colossians chapter 2 before. That particular verse you prayed a minute ago. You're not supposed to do that, by the way. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 is a discussion of the victory 
of Christ, Christ attained on the cross. A very fascinating passage of Scripture. Colossians 2, 13-15. I have it in your notes. You can turn to it. It says, When Christ had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Rulers and authorities, that has to do with the demonic forces. Christ stripped them at the cross. He stripped them, it says, of, his, of their power. He exposed them publicly for what they were. Now this passage in Colossians 2 is, is going back, Paul has in mind a Roman custom. A Roman custom where a general who had fought successfully in a battle was rewarded uh, for what he did. He was victorious in war. He'd get a victory parade. He would ride around in, in splendor and pomp and all that through the city. And his prisoners would be following him in their chains. And everybody could see this general was successful. He was victorious. He won the battle. He is, this is considered a triumphal procession. This is also in uh, 2 Corinthians, I think, the same idea. And Paul uses this custom as a way to explain his victory, Christ's victory over satanic powers. He is triumphal. And so this set in motion, the cross set in motion, the final defeat of Satan. Now at the same time, it says that the serpent is going to, he's going to bruise or crush your heel. Uh, by the way, there's Isaiah 53 where the Lord crushed Christ as well on the cross. But at the same time, Satan crushed Christ's heel, so to speak, on the cross. Think about this. Christ suffered greatly for us. Greatly for us on the cross. Suffered greatly, but he was not defeated. Not defeated. Satan was defeated, not Christ. On the, quite the contrary, he was in fact victorious because he cried, it is finished. Hebrews 2.14, Christ rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He rendered him powerless. 1 John 3.8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And then Romans 16.20, very clear reference, Romans 16.20, to Genesis 3.15. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Obvious reference to Genesis 3.15. Paul is seeking to encourage the church at Rome. And so he goes back to the promise of Genesis 3.15. And he says, yes, what Moses wrote is true. Uh, God of peace is soon going to crush Satan, the destroyer of peace, under your feet. He's going to do that. So don't be discouraged, Roman believers. Satan is going to be defeated He's not going to have the final victory. God will, just as he said in Genesis 3.15. And it probably has a reference to the second coming in that verse. Revelation 20 records Satan's last attempt to deceive the world, uh, which ends in failure. And then Revelation 20.10 says this, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan's defeat is sure, as predicted in Genesis 3.15. Those who come to Christ and turn from their sin and trust in him, they're going to be delivered out of Satan's kingdom, and they're going to become transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son, and they're going to become children of God, the seed of God. And if, I, if, you're not, if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, I encourage you to think about that and to, and to, and to trust Christ tonight. Genesis 3 is a story of temptation and sin and judgment and misery. True. But it's also the story of grace. As we are introduced to the first announcement of the gospel. Satan may have appeared to be victorious. And he thought, well, maybe it's all over now. But Genesis 3 
In Genesis 3, God says, no, I'm going to crush him. I'm going to be the winner. I'm going to be victorious. So is there hope? Yes, there's always hope in Christ. There's always hope in Christ. If you're without Christ, there's hope for you. If you'll come to Christ, you're living in a hopeless world. Come to Christ for your hope. If you put your faith in him. Is there hope for the believer who sinned? A lot of believers sin and they feel like they're defeated and they can't go on and they're not worthy of being Christians and all this. But there's hope for you too. Because the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's always hope in Christ for lost people, for believers who know Christ. You know there's hope in Christ. Don't let Satan defeat you. You say, well, I used to do this and I used to do that. Don't let Satan defeat you in your life. You can always start with God's grace right now. Don't let him defeat you. Don't let him discourage you. We are on the winning side. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful again for your word. We pray that you will help us to be, be encouraged tonight, Lord, knowing that we know you, that you because, or rather, we're known by you, that you first loved us, that you chose us by your grace, nothing, no contribution from us, Lord, that you saved us by your grace, and that we're here because of you. We pray we'll love you with all our heart, serve you, take our refuge in you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.